So, we're thinking about how, as Christian people, we should respond to popular culture, popular films, popular music, popular literature. We introduced our subject last week, and uh, we were trying to see last week um, that if we're going to be successful in sharing our faith with people who are not yet Christians, we need to understand two things. We need, obviously, first of all, to understand the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. But we also need to understand not just what we believe, but we also need to understand what our culture believes so that we can build bridges between ourselves and our culture. And uh, we've entitled this series, What's the Story? Because I think that sums up really almost everything I want to say, that as we look into our culture, we should always be asking, what's the story? What's the worldview? What is going on in this part of popular culture that says something about where people's hearts are? And we also need to be ready to tell our story as well. I, I, I want to suggest to you that, in a sense, our evangelism, our sharing our faith with our culture, is, in a sense, comparing two stories. The Bible story and the stories that circulate within our culture. The challenge for the living, vibrant church of Jesus in every age, whether we live now or in the 1700s or the 1500s, the challenge has always been how can the Christian church live in the culture while at the same time seeking to transform it? It's a balancing act. And we could picture it as a balancing act. Here's one of those crazy gymnasts who do crazy things on a six-inch wide beam. How do they do that? Sometimes I feel like I'm going to fall off the floor, let alone a beam. Cartwheels and somersaults. Now, here's my point. We, it doesn't really matter which side of the beam you fall off on. It still hurts. If you, like, if you fall off on the left side or you fall off on the right side, it still hurts when you hit the floor. So, on the one hand, the church of Jesus could fall off the beam by just withdrawing and becoming completely detached and isolated from the surrounding culture. And in that sense, the church of Jesus would not be engaged and no one would be listening. It's not a good side to fall off on. But the opposite extreme, on the other hand, is that we could just become exactly like the surrounding culture And the message of the gospel gets diluted. And in this case, people will be listening, but we won't have anything relevant to say. So a challenge for us is not to become detached from culture or to get diluted and absorbed into the culture. What we're aiming to do is to live in the culture, in a sense, to be at home in the culture that we find ourselves in, 
but to live such radically different lives that the culture around us will be transformed. I think one of the most exciting things about the church is that God has designed it so that as the church lives in the culture, it has a transformative power on the culture. So if we're going to achieve that balance, the whole point of doing this series is that we need to understand a little of the world we live in, don't we? We need to understand the gospel and the culture. We don't want to be detached and we don't want to have no bite. We want to be engaged and transformative. What we really need is a way of engaging with our culture then that will help us to see things as they really are. When we look out into the world, the challenge for us is to understand, isn't it? Why is popular culture like it is? Why is the world like it is? And so what I'd like to do is spend three weeks today, next week and the week after thinking about the Christian story and uh, here's my very simple idea the Bible story you could picture the Bible story you could picture history as an upside down curve and um, the idea is that God created the world good we've just been reading about that from Genesis but sin and evil came into God's good world there was a great catastrophic fall so the curve goes down but that's not the end of the story because God has made plans then to restore and redeem this broken sin spoiled creation and to restore it actually to something better than it was in the first place but that's the kind of arc of history creation for redemption or restoration So you could see the Bible story as this kind of arc. And what I want to do is think about these three sort of phases, if you like, and think about what does popular culture look like in the light of each of these three things. So today we're going to think about popular culture from the perspective of creation, first of all. Next week we'll think about the fall. And the following week we'll think about redemption. What does popular culture look like when you wear those three different pairs of glasses? So what is culture intended to be? How is it broken? And what can we see when we look at the culture in the light of the gospel? So what would popular culture look like if there was no fall to mess things up? That's our question today. So what's the story with creation? So... I'll leave that for a minute. Um, I, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that human beings have grappled with the question of origins since the year dot. Uh, all, all cultures, all people, I'm sure, think about questions of origins. Where did we come from? How did things begin? And there are many ancient uh, stories. Uh, ancient cultures have myth creation myths that try to sort of make sense of the world that we're in some ancient stories tell of some kind of deity God sending a creature on a mission to the bottom of the sea to find some material on the seabed that they can use to build lands for people to then live in so 
sounds weird to us. Um, I don't know whether those ancient cultures had a sense of creation sort of emerging from the depths. You can kind of see the idea. Those stories don't explain where the sea or the creature that does the diving comes from. It doesn't really go behind that. But the idea that creation somehow emerges from the depths in some way. Many stories bizarrely begin with a cosmic egg. The egg hatches in various ways, sometimes because a god wakes up inside the egg and the egg hatches. The lighter parts become the heavens and the spiritual realm and the darker parts of the egg become the earth and matter. And the whole point of history is for those kind of things to be unified again. Interesting. Some myths... Uh, detail a great struggle between a number of different gods and that creation is the result of some sort of cosmic conflict and creation was made from the leg of some defeated god Uh, how does that feel that we're all kind of a limb of some god who was conquered in battle I think in our modern culture we're very scientific aren't we? we we don't fall for all these myths in our modern culture the consensus is that whatever happened in the beginning, the world now is what scientists call a closed system. It all works. There's no possibility of a supernatural being impacting this closed system. What you see with your eyes is all there is. There's nothing beyond Everything happens in a kind of random void. There's no ultimate meaning. But even leaving this side, the idea of meaning, even these assumptions only describe a version of reality now. And they don't even come close to explaining how things began in the first place, do they? All of these stories assume something about the nature of whatever God or no God did the creating and they also say something about what creation actually is think about this is creation a trophy that was won or is it the rubbish left over from some great conflict there are some ancient philosophies we've talked before about uh, a philosophy called Gnosticism. I always want to say Gnosticism because it begins with a silent G. The Gnostics. Gnosticism was very um, influential in, in the New Testament times and maybe for 200 years after that. And Gnosticism is very interesting. It kind of implies that in the very beginning there was a very peaceful spiritual oneness. And there was nothing outside of that. And something within this spiritual oneness oneness went wrong. And in the very ancient past, that something that went wrong was thrown outside like a bag of rubbish. So in other words, the thing that is good is the invisible spiritual realm and all created matter is basically the bag of rubbish that was thrown out. And the whole idea of history is that one day that spiritual oneness, like a vacuum, will suck up all the badness and everything will be harmonious again. What kind of view of creation would that give you? 
In New Testament times, bizarrely, it meant that some people tried to avoid anything too physical or sensual because they felt matter is evil. So we're going to live a very self-denying lifestyle, like a monk. We're going to go and live in the desert. We're not going to have anything to do with the physical world. We're just going to meditate and think about the spiritual. But bizarrely, on the other hand, there were other Gnostics who said, if the physical realm doesn't really matter, we might as well just live it up. Suck it all up. Live life to the full. Because it doesn't matter anyway. What's really important is the spiritual realm. So the same idea made some people ascetic, self-denying, and made some people sensual, immoral. And the Christian church in the first century was dealing with both those extremes. Why? Because of where they thought they'd come from. Gnosticism, very influential. We said last week, didn't we, that a person's worldview will always have within it assumptions about God, where we've come from, And those things will filter through into the way we live our lives in this world and together. Well, that's enough. Let's uh, think about the Bible. Uh, Tim read to us from Genesis. I want to say three things about creation and then we'll say some things about what it means for human culture. So, first of all, I want to say this, that creation begins with a triune God. It is not a coincidence that we're thinking about popular culture and the Trinity at the same time. Creation begins with a triune God. The Bible never argues the existence of God. It simply assumes that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're thinking about the Trinity in our Goko groups as they've become known seems that's stuck and uh, we've been seeing that Christ is affected by what God's like and the doctrine of the Trinity is so crucial here there are hints of the Trinity in Genesis um, even in verse 1 and 2 it talks about the spirit hovering over the waters later on in chapter 1 intriguingly Genesis says God says let us make man in our image And there's that hint there of plurality. Who is God speaking to? Imagine a God who made everything. And before he creates the world, he is all by himself. A single, solitary figure forever and ever he has not loved anyone else because there's been no one else to love he doesn't know what it feels like to be loved by someone else because there hasn't been anyone else apart from him he is self-absorbed uncommunicative silent and brooding Mike Reeves in his book on the Trinity writes that for this God love is clearly not his heartbeat how could it be he's been on his own forever eternity in the past 
When the Bible says God is love, that statement makes no sense if God had no one or nothing to love. And you have to ask the question, don't you? Why would such a God bother to create anything at all? We were thinking about this on Thursday in our group. Maybe he just wants slaves. Maybe he's really bored and just wants a distraction. Maybe he's just deeply vain and desperate to be liked. When you begin to think through the implications, what do all those things say about creation and humanity? But everything changes, doesn't it, when we come to the Bible? The truth is that God is not solitary or needy or deficient in any way, is he? Because this great triune God is a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have been head over heels in love for all eternity in the past. This God is effusive and generous and outward looking, not greedy or hungry. He is self-giving and full of rich depth not selfish or shallow or cruel? And doesn't this deeply affect what creation's like? Creation isn't a leftover piece of rubbish from some cosmic conflict. It isn't inherently bad. Biblically, creation is the explosive overflow of his loving nature. It is God's generosity and love being lavished. His creative imagination causing a whole universe to spring into life. And that surely leads to my second very simple point. That creation is not bad, but inherently good. Tim read to us from Genesis chapter 1. What is the constant refrain all the way through that chapter? And God saw all that he had made and it was good. Not it was a bit rubbish, or it was a bit pathetic. God stands back. The whole chapter throbs with the excited delight of a master craftsman. And like a wonderful artist, as God paints art creation in all its colour and vibrancy, he's constantly standing back and reviewing it and going, now that is something else. Isn't that brilliant? And when God finally crowns this creation with human life, and stands back to review what he's made, he explains that it is now very good. It's like God stands back and goes, just look at that. Just take a look at that. Get a load of that. And it isn't the look or the lonely satisfaction of a single God but the mutual admiration, excitement and overflowing joy of a Trinitarian God. Like proud parents, Father, Son and Spirit, if I can say it reverently, elbowing each other in ribs and saying, get a load of that, isn't it great? Working in harmony, exploding creation into life, that is the natural outflow of their life together and then reviewing it proudly and saying, now, 
That is really something, that, isn't it? What are we getting at? Well, we're getting at the fact that the material world, the world that we live in, that we're part of, is not inherently bad, wicked, or evil. Creation itself is stamped with God's approval. If you've got a Bible, just turn with me to another passage in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's on page 1192, if you've got a Red Church Bible. Need a table. Just read these words, just from verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer Paul is pretty scathing here and he's basically saying that anyone who says that creation is bad has been deceived by the devil what Paul is saying is listen, life is good enjoy it Worship God. Be thankful to him for the overflowing generosity he showed to you. Don't be forbidding people to marry and forbidding certain foods and forbidding this and forbidding that. Everything God created is good. The point is that the material world is not evil. Listen, the, uh, the problem is you can do evil things with God's creation aren't you? But the point is, the creation itself is not inherently evil in itself. You can use it for evil ends, you can abuse it in a sinful way, but the creation itself is good and wholesome. And culture, really, human culture, is nothing less than human beings responding to to God's amazing creation and doing things with it, building things with it, reshaping it. We'll come to that in a moment, but first, a very quick third point. Thirdly, creation always reflects something of the character, the nature, and the glory of God. Psalm 19 is a very famous psalm. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. This is what I want us to get uh, today. The reason that things have meaning is because God put it there. 
the reason that things matter as much as they really do matter is because God is the source of all things. Did you ever think about that? If we are all here by random chance, actually, nothing matters. Nothing means anything. The reason that things do matter is because God has created. The reason you love is because you're made in God's image. The reason that you know what is right and wrong is because God stamped that within us. The reason we recoil when we see evil is because God has filled his world with meaning. The heavens declare the glory of God. In um, verse 3 of Psalm 19 it says, There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the very ends of the world. Creation speaks of God's glory in every place, in every language, to every tribe, to every person. In the New Testament, Paul writing to Romans speaks of the fact that we deliberately often suppress that reality. Even though deep down we know that there is God. We're, we're a bit like children who put their fingers in their ears and mum's calling. <laughs> I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I can't hear. Sometimes we live in God's world with our fingers in our ears suppressing the knowledge of that truth. I want to suggest to you that this has profound consequences for our understanding of popular culture because it means that even people who are very far in their thinking from God still bear the image of God. And the truth is that even when we're denying God, we are still not making our own meaning, but still actually responding to the meanings that God has already put there even when we don't realise we're doing it. And human culture is really taking this meaningful creation and responding to it. We can do it gratefully and for God's glory, or we could do it independently. But either way, our human culture will always bear the traces of meanings that God has built into it, whether we intend it to or not. And that's very profound and very important. So what are the implications for human culture, human beings? Um, I want to um, just remind you of uh, what Tim read to us in chapter 1 of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image. That, that doesn't mean that we're little gods. Um, yeah, verse 27. So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What, what it means is that we are stamped with his likeness. And I think a lot of this likeness is to do with relationship. And so I want to think about three things very, very simply, and then 
we'll conclude with a conclusion and we'll be done. So that sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Here's, here's my little picture of half a man. He has got legs, they're just not on there. What I want to think about is how are we made in God's image in relation to the upward, the sideward, and the downward. Does that make sense? So, the first is the upward, which is our relationship with God. So I'm going to call that worship, obviously. Human beings are made in God's image. We have the capacity to relate to, to know, and to worship our Creator. Yesterday, Jane was away, and we, me and the children, went out for a walk around the woods with Finley. And um, Sam had bought a little boar, £3.99, with his own money. And uh, we, we were playing ball, and, and then suddenly the ball goes up in the air, and Finley runs along, jumps up in the air teeth sink right into the ball. We had lots of tears because this ball was then popped and flat. But what a move by Finley. You know, he jumped up, <laughs> caught the ball in his mouth. Now, I have never ever seen a dog do that and a group of other dogs over here just stand back and go. Wasn't that amazing? Did you see what he just did there? He just jumped up and caught that ball in his mouth. Have you ever seen a dog applaud? Have you ever seen any animal stand back and go, wow, did you see that? It just doesn't happen, does it? Why is that? It is because human beings are created to be more than animals. Human beings are created to applaud. Human beings are created with this insatiable appetite to go, wow, did you see that? Do you know that the Trinity reflects this very thing? Because this is what God has been doing forever. Standing back and looking at each other within the Godhead and going, wow. And nudging the other one and saying, isn't he fantastic? I know, isn't he fantastic? And the worship that goes on within the Godhead. The capacity to be in awe. Wow! And the Bible said, God said, let us make man in our image. And God creates human beings with the capacity to be awed. Popular culture is a religious pursuit. Why? Because it is designed to evoke that very response, isn't it? We go to the cinema to watch a film. Why? Because we want to sit back and go, wow, was that fantastic? Is that not worship? Popular culture is designed to be a religious pursuit. We are created to look outside of ourselves and be in awe. The ultimate fulfilment of that yearning is to see and savour and enjoy and worship the living triune God. Popular culture reflects that human desire. 
And popular culture resonates with people when we see things that stir us and make us go, wow, that's amazing. So there's the first thing. We're creating God's image for worship. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in God. It reflects the Trinity. And it kind of gives us a clue as to why popular culture works. Secondly, the side word. We need to be quick. Community, relationship. The Trinity reflects this too, doesn't it? Unbelievably, it's not a coincidence. The Trinity, relational God. A God who is in himself, the original community. In Genesis here, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Even there, in gender, the call and response. Someone said... Adam's the question, Eve's the answer. There's kind of a complementarity, even built into the human race. And it is together, corporately, that we reflect something of God being relational. I'm, 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 don't misunderstand that. I'm not saying that only people who are married can reflect that. Jesus was single. What I am saying is that we're made for relationship and it involves community and communication and ultimately love isn't it true too that popular culture is fundamentally relational, I've joked with you many times how boring it would be to go to a football match on my own there's nothing I like better in some ways than going to a, my beloved Wigan Athletics, seeing them play in the Premier League with Rob and Ben and my dad sometimes and when Wigan score, the first thing we do is look at one another. Why is that? If I went on my own, I'd be bored. I, I, if there was no other crowd there, how, how bad would that be? Just on my own, with a cup of bothril, watching the game. I think I heard that, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> we have got some fans. No. Popular culture is fundamentally relational. We want to be wild together. It doesn't work by being individualistic. This is why there's fan clubs. In the age of the internet now, there's so many things. I, I would say this. If you ever meet Jai at a party, try and pretend that you don't know him and say to him, hey, do you like Doctor Who? And imagine the fun you could have. Why is that? When people have a shared interest, it enhances relationship, doesn't it? We enjoy popular culture the most when we enjoy it together. And it gives us a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, a sense of shared excitement and shared value. So, worship, relationship, and the last one, environment. I don't really want to use the word environment in an ecological sense. I'm not going to talk about ozone layers and sort of, you know, whether you should use deodorant and all that stuff. I'll leave that for politicians and other people to talk about. What I'm talking about is the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. What did he say to them? Verse 28 of chapter 1, Genesis 1. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's the beginning of culture. God said to them, I want you to go out 
and make this place inhabitable. I want you to go and make a home for yourself. I want you to go and fill it, multiply, subdue it, rule over it. Of course, tutor Ted, in his book, Popologetics, uses the word tame. I like that. Human beings are called to go out and tame creation. To master it. Not to abuse it or to waste it or to destroy it. But to manage it like good stewards. That is what we are. Stewards. Human beings living in God's good world. And it's not ours to ruin. But ours to manage. Do you remember in the Lord of the Rings, the last one, and it, it kind of begins to focus on the city of Gondor. And there's no king until Aragorn comes and he gets crowned king. Tear-jerky moment at the end. But the city has a steward called Denethor. Do you remember him? Denethor. His job was to look after the city until the king came back and what is he doing sitting in his empty banqueting hall chomping on food dribbling down his beard miserable he's fed up with his sons he was a shadow of what he ought to have been as a steward looking after what he should have been looking after he'd lost his courage he became selfish and inward looking and all the external threats in the story just made him retreat into himself and he turned into a miserable old man, didn't he? You remember? I was trying to find a clip so I could show you, but this too reflects the Trinitarian God who makes order out of chaos. We want to live here we want things to mean something here. We want to be safe here. Have purpose here. We want to build something that we can live in. Isn't that what human culture is? I want to suggest to you that popular culture does this, exactly this, by creating stories that give meaning that people can then inhabit those values doing culture is part of reflecting the image of God if you go to chapter 4 of Genesis well we verse 17 Cain Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch we then get down to verse 20 Adar gave birth to Jabal he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock his brother's name was Jubal he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute Zillah also had a son Tubal Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron city and country artistic talent industry science all of these things are beginning Popular culture gives us somewhere to live. So, we're almost done. I want to suggest to you, maybe we can define popular culture with this diagram in mind. 
Biblically, popular culture is responding to God's good creation in a way that glorifies God, enhances community, and makes sense of our environment so that we can live in it. That is what popular culture ought to be, biblically. But it isn't, is it? Because sin and evil ruin things. And you'll have to come back next week to find out that perspective. Let me just conclude with a couple of applications. Given all that we've said today about creation, I want to ask this question. How do you view God? Is he a miserable old man in the sky who's lonely and just wants to treat you as a slave? And if you view God in such a way, how does that make you think about creation stuff? God is the great triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, the creator of heaven and earth. He is not a tyrannical, selfish despot. He is a loving, generous Father who has given us everything we need. Maybe spiritually we need to repent of our twisted views of God. When we think of God wrongly, it makes us self-centred, independent, ungrateful, proud. And perhaps even today, we need to come home to receive again his fatherly grace and the kindness that he shows to us in Jesus, his son, our saviour. Practically, maybe we need to rethink our attitude towards popular culture and not dismiss it all as evil or ignore it as being trivial, but rather to see that people who are made in God's image will always somehow reflect some of the meaning that God has built into his creation. And I want to suggest to you that we need to have a kind of holy curiosity about life in general and not close ourselves off. One writer says that if Christians isolate themselves from culture, they become cultural anorexics. What a great phrase that is. We don't want to be cultural anorexics. And finally, we need to think very carefully about our attitude towards the creation of popular culture. I, I think it's often true that as Christians we think if something isn't evangelism, then it's a waste of time somehow. And Christians in the recent past have disregarded the arts completely as something that is a waste of time. And the popular cultural world are dominated by people who have no faith. I want to argue that this is God's world and the way we glorify him and express our humanity includes work and play. It includes science and industry and creativity. So we mustn't have a low view of people who are artistic and think that they're not doing real work because that is part of the world that we live in. Let's uh, close, shall we, and pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for your abundant generosity, for your awesome power, for your great imagination and creativity. We thank you that this world has meaning because you have put it there. 
And we thank you for the privilege of being alive in your good world. We pray that you would forgive us for having wrong views of you. And we pray today that as we've considered your word, as we've thought about cultures, we've thought about our own hearts, we pray that you would lead us not to mistrust you, but to trust you as our loving Father. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive our doubts and that you would stimulate and nurture our faith in you as our Father in heaven. Help us, Lord, to enjoy life because you have given it to us. We pray that you would protect us and preserve us in these things. We ask it in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.